I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 19. When you came in, you should have gotten or could have gotten um, one of these sermon booklets. This is what we use for sermon notes, for your community group questions, for your personal quiet times. What's, this is, it's hard to believe, this is our, maybe our 11th, our 11th book. This is our last book in the series of the Gospel of John. We're going to be finishing up the Gospel of John by the end of January. We'll tell you more later about what we're going to be doing after that. But um, thanks to Debbie Tannis and her team for all the work they, they do into putting together these booklets for us. They're, they're a huge grace, a huge, a huge blessing. As you turn to the John 19, I wrote in the weekly, which is our communique we send out to, to all the Four Oaks folks during uh, the week, every week, that we, we had dinner with some, with some really good friends this past week, Susan and I did. And the occasion is that we were all ostensibly celebrating our 50th birthdays. And I say ostensibly because they were celebrating their 50th birthdays. I was celebrating my 49th. It was lovely. Now, I turned 50 here in just a few months. And it was one of the, you know those magical evenings, you know, when you have, when you're just connecting and you're eating and talking and storytelling and reminiscing and rejoicing in the goodness of God. It was one of those kinds of evenings. But we began to reflect a little bit on 50 years and the fact that most likely we have lived more of our life than not, that, that you know, Susan and I were thinking about the fact that we came to Tallahassee in 1996, married four years, no kids, and, and here we are um, on, on this backside of life. And so it was interesting, this, this evening of festivity and celebration sort of took on this kind of serious tone. It was a sober tone. We were like looking at each other and saying, what are we doing with our lives? How are we going to spend the time that God has given us and maximize it and leverage it and make the most of, of, of our relationships? It was, just, it was just a fascinating contrast. On, on one hand, it was celebratory, but it was also serious. It was renewing, but it was also reflective. It was sanguine and light and fun, but also serious all at the same time. And I can't help but think that this, in a lot of ways, captures the spirit of Advent, the, the, the season of celebrating the first coming of Jesus Christ, who became flesh, he dwelt among us. We've seen this over and over in the Gospel of John, how this, a great light has appeared to rescue us from darkness. And John has not held back in celebrating this. All through his Gospel, you've seen this if you've been with us. Let's think about water being turned to wine at the wedding in Cana. Or the man born blind who says, now I see. The feeding of the 5,000 in the desert. And of course, the raising of Lazarus, actual raising a man from the dead. All of these have been incredible things to celebrate and take great joy in in the Gospel of John. However, John has been clear to remind us all along the way that there's something looming in the background of all this joyous celebration. There's a shadow that's being sort of cast over the ministry of Jesus. And of course, it's the shadow of the cross. That, That Jesus has, yes, come to do amazing, awesome, celebratory things. But in order to give us what you and I really need, eternal joy in his presence forevermore, Jesus had to do something much more fundamental, much more sober, much more serious. He had to come and die. 
And I know in a lot of ways that really captures the, the spirit or the feeling of, of Advent many of us have. It's a time of great celebration. It's a time of great joy, seeing family and friends. But it's also, for us, a painful time. This might be your first Christmas without your spouse. You might have a prodigal child, a, a broken relationship, something that's, that, that's, that's wrong. Well, in a lot of ways... This passage really speaks to that because it speaks to what Jesus came to do. The most fundamental thing he came to do. He came to do many things, but there's one thing above all else that he came to do. Otherwise, none of this means anything. And it's that he came to die. And this passage this morning, by, in God's providence, the first Sunday of Advent, is on the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And, and you may say, or I may say, well, Pastor Paul, this is, this is a strange text for Advent. This is, this is not what I came here for this morning. And I would want to ask us and ask God to expand our hearts. Maybe this is exactly the passage that we need to hear and need to be reminded of as we kick off this Advent season. So we're going to be in John 19, beginning in verse 16. If you can, I invite you to stand I'm going to read from God's Word. We're also going to flash it on the screen up here. It's not a fancy title today. Because John doesn't make it fancy. He just makes it clear. It's the crucifixion of our Savior. Verse 16, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. One part for also his tunic. I'm sorry, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Lord, we pray that you would give us receptive hearts this morning to be reminded and to hear about why you came. That you were about the business of seeking and saving that and those whom were lost. And that apart from this scene, apart from this decisive act in human history, we here today would be lost. We would just be playing at religious things with candles and songs and sentimentality. But Lord, you came to give us what our hearts most earnestly desire, and that's eternal joy. So Lord, expand our hearts, open our minds, bless our time in the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We celebrate communion every week here at Four Oaks, but today um, seems particularly relevant when we consider the text before us. And, And I want you to sort of kind of gear your mind up to meditate on two things this morning from this text as we come to the table, both related to the cross. First, I want you to, to, to sink your teeth and wrap your mind around the shame of the cross that we see from start to finish in this text. There's so much shame. There's so much embarrassment. There's so much scandal. John wants us to see that. But John also wants us to see the salvation offered in the cross. So he's not displaying the shame of Jesus just to display it. In fact, as we're going to see, without the shame, there isn't the salvation. And so if you came in here this morning feeling covered in shame, embarrassed, um, having some part of your life exposed that's dark and secret and not so pretty to those around you. Jesus understands that. It tells us, not that he sinned, but the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Now listen, despising the shame. Despising the shame. What does that mean? It means of counting it of no consequence knowing that it was of no import in light of the salvation that he was pursuing. And so we're going to talk about the shame of the cross and then the salvation of the cross. So that's where we're heading. Shame of the cross first. Many of you know Joe LeBlanc of this church. That's Joe, J-O, not to be confused with Joe Haverlock, the worship pastor, J-O-E. But, but J-O um, has been at Four Oaks here for many years. Um, she's getting married in February, and all God's children said, amen. Okay, yeah, there we go. Now, one of the best things about Joe, other than the fact that she kind of runs the church from behind the curtain, other than that, she's, she's from England, which means she's got a great accent, and that's half the reason we, we keep her around, um, just to hear her answer the phone and all those sorts of things. But we're always giving her a hard time about all things British, right? And one of the things the, the Brits perfected, and you know this if you've ever visited London and the Tower of London, you know that the Brits knew how to kill slow, someone slowly and painfully, did they not? They perfected the art of, of death. and we, not, not the art of cooking, but certainly the art of death. And see, I always give Joe a hard time about these things. But as much as they did, and if you've seen Braveheart, you know enough for me to stop right there. But you know that they had nothing on the Romans when it came to perfecting the art of the horrific 
shameful death through the form of capital punishment that we now know as crucifixion. In fact, crucifixion was so horrific, so horrifying, so shameful, it was against the law to use it against a Roman citizen. Remember when the Apostle Paul, they were, they were, he was being beaten by the Roman soldiers, and he said, hey, you may not want to do that because I'm kind of a Roman citizen. Remember how they freaked out? You weren't supposed to do things like that to Roman citizens. They had more humane kinds of punishments, shall we say. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low. Criminals, insurrectionists, people who were enemies of the empire. If you're going to execute a Roman citizen, it took... Um, by, by crucifixion, it took explicit permission from Caesar himself. And John, although it's not his main point, he does give us a glimpse of how shameful physically this really was. And I'm just going to highlight a couple of things here. This is all under the, the shame of the cross. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, it says that Pilate, and it says, handed over or delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. That's actually a judicial term. It means to inaugurate a a capital punishment process. It means to hand someone over in order for them to execute judicial sentence or justice. And, And we know from from history and extra biblical resources what this meant. Jesus had already been flogged once. But as this began, the official process of crucifixion, there was a second flogging called the verberatio, where the criminal was stripped naked, tied to a post, and beaten with a whip embedded with bone and metal. Now, this in itself was such a horrific ordeal that oftentimes the criminal would die during that process. That's how bad it was. Sometimes there was so much bleeding, there was so much loss of blood, there was exposure of of internal vital organs that that was it. But if, if the criminal was so unfortunate as to survive that beating, then the next step in the crucifixion process is that they would make that victim carry their own execution tool, the cross, to the execution side. And in fact, this is exactly what John tells us happened here. Look at verse 17. It says that Jesus carried the cross himself. Now, most likely, this was not a, a cross with two pieces as we think about it. It was probably one piece, a beam, a horizontal beam, like a railroad tie, that the, the accused would put over their shoulder, and they would drag this beam along till they got to the crucifixion site. Now, once they got there, there was already a vertical beam or post already put in the ground. And so they would lay the the person out and they would nail their hands to this post. You can imagine that. Then hoist them up, even more excruciating, and then would nail their feet into the vertical post. Now, what's interesting about this is look at verse 31 for a second. John gives us a glimpse at just how horrific this was. It says in verse 31 that since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, it says the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, what is that about? Well, you got to understand when you're 
have your feet and hands nailed on a cross, it's very difficult to breathe. And the only way to breathe is to sort of push yourself up on the cross to give yourself a breath. And this is all while being out in the scorching sun. This is after having much loss of blood. You're completely naked. You're absolutely humiliated. But if they broke their legs, that means that they would die quicker. They would asphyxiate on the cross. Otherwise, they would die from heart attack or heat stroke or loss of blood. Sometimes crucifixion deaths could take not just hours, not just hours, but in fact, days. That's how awful it was. Now, one of the things that the Romans did was they built on their crosses a little platform, a little seat that the the criminal could, could sort of rest themselves on to help them push up as they breathe. Now, you may say, well, that was awfully nice of the Romans. No, 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 not nice at all, because that was only meant to prolong the death, to prolong the agony. And John is sort of giving us just a a little bit of a glimpse into the, to the horrific, of this, horrific nature of this in terms of the physicality. But it's not the main thing John emphasizes. I'll give you that for context. The main thing that John emphasizes is not the pain of the cross, but in fact, it's the shame. It's the shame. That's what John draws our attention to. Remember that all of this was carried out publicly. The trial, the whipping, the flogging, the carrying of the cross. Remember that this would have been Passover, so there's thousands of people already there. They've already assembled for Jesus' trial. They assembled for his triumphal entry, which was five long days before this. So there was already thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on hand. And they would have been lining the streets, doing their thing, And it would have been the job of Jesus and these other two criminals to carry their beam to the outside of the city because executions were not allowed within the city limits. But as they're going, you know that the streets were lined up with throngs of people who were gawking, who were looking on, who were jeering, who were making comments. You know, sometimes we'll we'll see old westerns, or and and this was based on, on fact reality, that, that executions were public events. So when Abraham Lincoln's assassins were hung and executed, hundreds, thousands gathered in the naval courtyard to, to watch it happen. That's been the history of mankind. We don't do that so much here in the Western culture. But they did it then. It was a big deal. It was a part of the deterrent that the Romans had. It was like, if you want to see what happens when you cross Rome, just get a front row seat. And so this is part of the the public shame that the crucified had to endure. But to sort of extenuate that, and look look there in verse 19, it says that Pilate had a sort of a placard or a sign affixed with Jesus' name and and his crime and what he did. And this placard was either going to be put around the neck of the criminal or... If you've ever been to a golf tournament and you've seen the, the guy the, or the woman who holds the little scorecard with the, the names of the golfers, you've seen this, can they walk in front of the group and all that. And so this is probably what happened. And they had a placard, somebody carried it, and it was meant to tell each and every person who would see this. In, in, in Latin, which was the language of the, of the empire, the Romans, 
Greek, which was the common language of the whole known world, and then Aramaic, which was Hebrew for the, for the locals. Anybody and everyone could read that this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So you can imagine how shaming, how horrific this event would be. In fact, to in, ensure that it got the greatest amount of publicity possible, they would take the crucified outside the city gates. And it tells us here, look in verse 17, they took Jesus to a place called Golgotha. It was probably a stone quarry. It was a refuge, a waste dump. But if you go to Jerusalem now, you can, you can see probably about where it was. But it was, a, it was right along the road of an intersection of a major thoroughfare. So what would happen? You'd be journeying up to Jerusalem. You would come outside the city gates and there, right there for all to see. And, and, and it would have been very accessible. You've got people milling around. You've got, you've, got, you've got Roman soldiers. You've got the Jewish leaders. In a second, we'll talk about how his, even his own family was there. It was meant to provide the biggest public display of shaming possible. John reminds us of this again, verse 20. It says that many Jews saw him. The coup de grace, of course, of all of this, and look down at verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 26. Look who was there. Mary was there. Mary's sister was there. Mark tells us her name was Salome. She was actually the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, which makes, this is interesting, we don't often talk about this, but it's true, Jesus and the apostle John were seemingly first cousins. So his close, intimate friends were there. John was the only apostle who didn't run, abandon him. John's there with the women, with all these cowardly men who have run, but those who Love Jesus, his mom, his aunt, his cousins. They were, they were all gathered around. You know, it's one thing to be shamed in front of strangers, isn't it? It's quite another to be shamed in front of the people who know you best. Now, I remember in, in high school, um, I attempted to play tennis for the tennis team. And um, those of you who've seen me play tennis know that's exactly what it was, an attempt. And, and, and I didn't mind people coming to watch except my parents. I didn't want them anywhere near that match, okay? I did not want them to see me lose. I didn't want them to see me throw my racket and break it that they had spent $300 on. I didn't want them to see. I was, I was, it, was, it was just something about it was particularly embarrassing and shaming. The people who know Jesus best are seeing him at his very lowest moment. Do you see what John's doing here? He's painting a picture of untold shame. Now, if you think about it, though, we have to ask why. Because it is, it is a little counterintuitive to human nature. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond to shame? I don't mean like faux shame, like I did a little something and posted it on Facebook. I mean like something like truly embarrassing, Truly something that would bring, if people knew about it, would make others put their hand over their mouth and go, ooh. What, what, what do you do when you do one of those? Say something you shouldn't say or do something you 
shouldn't do. What is your initial impulse if you're human at all? What do you want to do? I want to run. I want to hide. I want to conceal. I want to look around and see if anybody saw my shopping cart go all the way across the parking lot and hit that car, right? I want to see if anybody actually witnessed that. No, we, we, we don't like to be exposed, which makes what John is doing here very interesting. We, 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 it's hard for us to get this culturally. There was nothing more shaming than this. But the most shocking thing about John's narrative it's not that it happened, because it happened all the time in the ancient world to religious leaders and figures and zealots. Here's, the, here's what's interesting. The most amazing thing is that John is telling us about this at all. Now, I want, I want you to think about this. I mean, a lot of, many of you have been Christians for a long time. You're just, it's a second nature of the cross, of course. That's why Jesus came. Not John's first readers. Oh, no. This was, this was something embarrassing. This was something to hide. What's interesting about most world religions' figures is that their followers always work to conceal their flaws. Do you notice that? It's kind of like the way we idolize certain famous figures or religious folks or athletes, and then we're always deeply disappointed when something comes out and and exposes them for some aspect of their character that no one knows about. We go into spin zone or deny zone or hide it zone or we try to discredit the sources that's no that's just human nature with john though what is remarkable is that here we have jesus christ the author and perfecter of our faith who was shamefully scandalously murdered john doesn't hide it he proclaims it in fact, in fact he, he writes a whole book about it. This is, this is what makes Christianity radically, fundamentally different than any other religion or philosophy of thought. And I, and I said this two weeks ago. I want to repeat it again for those who weren't, weren't, weren't here. And this comes from Tim Keller. All world religions have a founder who says, follow me, this is the way to get to God. Do these particular things, whether it's Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or Joseph Smith, and their followers do. Do these particular lists of things to, to gain transcendence or enlightenment or access to eternal life or God. Not Christianity. Jesus says, I didn't come to show you the way. I am the way. I didn't come to tell you what to do to get to the Father. I came to bring you to God. I came to do for you what you could not do for yourself. That's why I had to die this shameful death. It's what makes Christianity completely, utterly unique. Do you realize, church, we sing songs about this? We, we affix crosses on buildings because of this? We wear jewelry, we wear rings, we, we have Bibles that have inscriptions of the cross. How utterly and positively scandalous this is. And John's wanting to lay that point on us. Jesus did not, did, wasn't consumed by the shame. 
He despised the shame for us. This brings us to our second point. He endured the shame to bring you and I salvation. Now what I want to do here just quickly is I want to to point out the purposefulness of everything that is happening in this passage, okay? I, I want you to get a, get a glimpse that this is shaming, shame, 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 but, but I want you to see how Jesus Christ is utterly and positively in control of every aspect of his own shameful death. Look at verse 17. When it says they took Jesus and went out, I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that word went out literally means to be led, as in a shepherd would lead his flock of sheep. And guys, we know a, a sheep will follow a shepherd wherever the shepherd goes. A sheep, sheep follow their shepherd right to death, don't they? They'll go right to the, to the slaughterhouse. This was unlike what t- crucifixions were typically like. Remember, in a crucifixion, people weren't led out willingly. They were herded like cattle. So think about these criminals having to take this cross, bearing it some quarter, half mile. And, and if you're bearing that cross, you know what awaits you on the other side, and there's nothing in you that wants to go. In fact, criminals might lay down. They might refuse to carry their cross, and so what would happen? Roman soldiers are getting them, picking them up, stabbing them, beating them, prodding them forward like a cattle rod because they are going to a place they don't want to go. They're not going willingly. This word John is using to communicate to us that Jesus went willingly. He went obediently like a sheep to the slaughter because he had a plan to carry out. And this is what John does with all these characters in this story. Look at how they unwittingly carry out the plan that Jesus says, I must execute. Look, look down at Pilate. When Pilate writes on the placard, King of the Jews, this is verse 19. Now what's interesting about this? Well, why does Pilate write King of the Jews? Well, remember the Pharisees, the religious leaders have said, the reason we want you to execute this man, Pilate, is because he's an insurrectionist. He, he calls himself a king, and, and, he, and we, have, we, we have no king but Caesar, of course. And, and Pilate looks at him like, a king? You've got to be kidding. This guy is not a king of anything. And so as part of Pilate's mockery towards Jesus, but also towards the religious leaders, he has written king of the Jews. This is why they say, we don't want you, no, 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 Pilate, we don't want you to write that. We want you to say that he called himself king of the Jews. And Pilate's like, this is just my way to stick it to you guys. You're a bunch of petty fools. Um, You're going to cause a riot, civil unrest if I don't go through with this execution. So it was his way of, of sticking it to both Jesus and the religious leaders. He thought, That's what Pilate thought. You see, Pilate spoke better than he knows. Remember how we talked, um, Stephen last week talked about irony, how John is the master of irony? Think back to a second in John chapter 11 when the religious leaders are gathered and Caiaphas is there. Remember Caiaphas, the high priest, just pronounced death on Jesus? Remember when he said, we ought to kill Jesus because it's better for one man to die 
than the whole country to die. Remember when he said that? And this is John's commentary on this. Think about it. He said this. Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. In other words, Pilate thought, we're, doing, we're, we're operating on this level right here, and God says, no, you're not, Pilate. No, um, no, you're not, Caiaphas. You think you are, but I've got this grand plan that's happening right here, and I'm going to use your evil deeds to carry it out. My plan is not going to be thwarted. You are unwittingly carrying out the sovereign plan of the universe. See, this is what's happening to Pilate. Pilate is speaking better than he knew. Pilate writes this inscription in three languages, this trilingual notice. He thinks he's being cute. He wants to make sure everybody gets in on the game of mockery. Not realizing Pilate, Jesus just isn't the king of kings or the king of Jews. He's the king of the world. He's the king of the Romans. He's the king of the Greeks. He's, he's, the, he's the king of everyone and everyone who has been or will be created. One day, Pilate, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So we see Pilate in this drama. We also see the soldiers. Look at verse 24. They're gambling for Jesus's cloak. Remember, this was the cloak that was given to him in the praetorium back in the, um, the trial in Jerusalem as a mockery, as a purple velvet robe. People were, were using it to mock him as a sign of a royalty and bowing down to him, putting the crown of thorns on his head. And it says that they're, they're casting lots, and they think they're so, they're so cute with this, Right? They think they're, they're having all the fun at Jesus' expense. But John reminds us of something. Actually, verse 24, they're fulfilling what God said would happen all along. And he quotes Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, I want to point out something I've never seen in this passion narrative until studying it this week. That quote comes from Psalm 22. One of the very first things that Jesus says on the cross is what the other gospel writers tell us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where does that come from? Psalm 22. When it says that Jesus said, I thirst, him saying, I thirst, was, John says, to fulfill Scripture. Where does that come from? Psalm, you guessed it, twenty-two, fifteen. that says this, My strength is dried up like a pot's hurt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay in me the dust of the earth. Two things I want to say about this. One, just on a very practical level, and you've heard me say this many times, the season of peace is the time to prepare for crisis. The season of peace is the time to prepare for suffering. When you were in the middle of the season for suffering, that, that, that's not the time to download uh, loads of theological knowledge. Your soul is hurting. It's an exposed place. Jesus, for three years, has got, woken up every morning and prayed to his Father. He has memorized the Word. He knew this from the time that he was the age of 12. Remember this? 
And as he is going to the cross, there is no doubt in my mind that Jesus has fixed in his heart, fixed in his soul, Psalm 22. And as, as he is being ushered through this great torment, this, this most shameful and painful act, his soul is just bursting forth with the word of God. Do you see that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're gambling for my robes. I'm thirsty. This is all, secondly, in fulfillment of the prophecies of God. See, I find it amazing that Jesus here is not the victim in the way that we think about being the victim. He's unjustly accused, no question about that. But Jesus has the wherewithal, even in the middle of being unjustly and scandalously killed, to say, I am doing this because I'm being obedient to the Father. These people are doing my Father's bidding. The Father is in absolute control of this. This is not a cosmic tragedy. This is not an unfortunate circumstance. I haven't been just caught up in the, in the whim of the crowd. In fact, I am 100% totally in control of everything that's happening right now. And so the question is, where do you need to be reminded about that in your own life? That someone has intended evil for you. Maybe they've written a placard with all the accusations against your name or your family. Maybe, they, maybe someone has metaphorically gambled over your tunic and taken advantage of you. Or when you've asked for something to drink, they put sour wine on a sponge and put it up to your lips. And, and everything in us wants to say that is wrong and it is wrong. But it's not the most important thing we can say. The most important thing we can say is the same thing Joseph said to his brothers. You intended this for evil, but guess what? God intended it for good. Where do you need faith to see this in your own life? See, it's this idea that Jesus is absolutely, positively, 100% in charge of what's happening here, that he can say, look at verse 28 and 29, he says, it is finished. It literally means I have faithfully discharged my duties. Mission accomplished. I have done what you have sent me out to do, Father. And I've known it from the very beginning. The specter of the cross has been in the background of all that I've done, and that's not by accident. It's by design so that you and I, Four Oaks, can have salvation. Jesus says, I have finished the work. Now, one last thing from this passage that I think is, is pretty cool. What work did he finish? Now, here I'm, we, we know the work is, is his death, but what did it accomplish for us? I find this really intriguing. Look, look, look down where Jesus is talking to his mother in verse 26, where he says, Woman, behold your son. You know, if men, uh, children um, at Christmas this year, don't come in from college and say that, okay, to your mother. Okay, woman. Behold me. No, don't, don't, don't try that at home. Okay? Woman, behold your son. Son, behold. What, what, what is Jesus saying? Well, I mean, on, on one level, he's saying, look, John, 
Cousin John, I'm going away. I need you to take care of mom. And in fact, that is what happened. Church history tradition tells us that Mary lived with John for the rest of her life, although we, we don't know this for sure. Extra biblical resources tell us they probably ended up in Ephesus. Remember when John was writing to the churches um, there and she probably died. You can still visit Ephesus and they have claims to her tomb and those sorts of things. We don't know that for sure. That's, that's not what's important. But that is part of what's happening here. John is going to take care of Mary the rest of his life. It was the duty of the oldest son, which is Jesus, to entrust the care of his mother to someone who would take care of her while he was gone. But that's not what Jewish law said, though. See, that responsibility fell to the next eldest son. And Jesus, we know from this gospel, had several brothers, One of those was Jude. One of those was James. Why didn't Jesus entrust Mary to them? I think this is part of John's way of communicating to us that the cross does something radically transformative that has never been done in the history of the world. You know what it does? It says the most important bond that you can have with anyone in this life is not the blood bond. You know, we we hear blood is thicker than water. That is not what the gospel says. You see, blood will not unite us for eternity. Only one thing will, and what is that? It's the cross. It's God's forever family. See, John's brothers, I'm sorry, Jesus' brothers to this point aren't believers. We know they become believers. But they're not believers And Jesus says, that's okay. I've given you, Mary, the family of God. See, some of you this Advent season may feel very alone. It sure, it it reminds you of something. It's full of pain. It's full of sorrow. It's full of regret. You may feel like there's no one else in the world there for you. And Jesus says, in all sincerity, that's not true. What I have given you here, Four Oaks, is is your forever family, is your relationships that, that have something much more profound than blood in common. They have Jesus Christ. That's the most important bond anyone can ever have, and it will be the only bond that unites us for all eternity. And so Jesus says to you this morning, the Father says to you this morning, behold your elder brother, Jesus. And Jesus, behold your elder children, behold your brothers and sisters. We're part of the community of faith because Jesus despised the shame, died on a cross, for you and me.